copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you've got one of your handy-dandy vision guides there, close by, you can go ahead and grab that too and just flip it open to page 2. I won't be referring to this the whole time, just a couple key points. Uh, what, what this is, this book that you've got in front of you, is just our attempt at trying to summarize where we're going as a church. Had somebody this past week walk in and say, just off the street, was interested, new to the area, interested about the church, and he said, tell me about your, your church. Tell me what you guys do, what you're about. And I just handed one of these hot off the press to him and said, here it is. Here's what we're about as a church. Here's what we're, where we're going as a body of believers. What I've tried to do over the past four or five weeks is I've tried to make a distinction between the mission of the church, that's the task, That's the job that we're called to give ourselves to, which is our expression of the Great Commission. Uh, What we talk about here is guiding people to Christ-centered identity and Christ-centered influence. We've been talking about that. But we've also been talking about vision. And vision is where we're going. What's the destination we're trying to get to as a body of believers? And what we've talked about and what you see there on page two, the way that I would quickly express for us Where we're trying to go as a body of believers is the word multiplication. We believe that multiplication in summary fashion shows the body of believers here at Riverview where we're going. And your little guys there, you can see that we're talking multiplication at a couple of levels. What we've been talking about is not only individual multiplication, that that should happen, that that we're investing our lives in the word and others in hopes that they in turn would invest in other people. But we're also wanting to see the church multiply. We believe a healthy, local, New Testament church is a church that seeks to start new churches, is a church that's reproducing itself in new places, especially in places where the the gospel is not present or the gospel is not very prominent. Those are the places, some of the darkest parts of the world, that's where we want to put our energy and effort behind that. That doesn't exclude planting a church someplace in the state of Missouri in our local Jerusalem, but there's a focus on multiplication. Last week, we talked about how individual multiplication happens. We talked about that it's the fact that we're investing the word and our lives in other people. We're trying to entrust the gospel to other people in such a way that they see it as valued, precious, and special, and they want to entrust it to someone else. Today, what I want to do is I want to drill a little bit deeper into what church multiplication looks like. How is it such that a body of believers, a local New Testament church, is supposed to multiply? When you hear the word church, maybe for the first time, if you just were to think about church and that word, what are some of the things that come to your mind? When you first hear that word church, maybe for some of us, the first thing that comes to mind is a building, right? Bricks and mortar, a physical location. Some of us, when we hear the word church for the first time, maybe it's uh, thinking about a worship service, like a a, a group of people gathering together to sing and, and declare God's praises. Sometimes when we hear the word church, we think about ministry or things we're trying to do in the community. And the reality is that while those are all partially true, none of those ideas actually get to the core of what a church actually is. And the reason for that is that a church is actually not a what. The church is actually a who. I want to show you that from God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
starting in verse 12, okay? Would you stand with me, stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one members, but of many. This is God's word. This is his holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you please pray with me, church? Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we ask and we pray that you would speak to our hearts. God, would you illumine our minds? Would you open our understanding to see your truth? And Father, would you remove distractions in these moments that would help us not just see your truth, but live it. Help us to be a people that do not just hear your word, but help us to be a people that do your word. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. So... What is a church? Based on this passage of Scripture, what is a church? Well, here's what Paul does here. Paul uses an image or an illustration to help us understand what a church is. And the image he uses is that of the body. And here's what he says. He says, just as a physical body has many parts, but yet is still one, the body of Christ, that's the church, has many different parts as well, but is also one. I'm just curious, how many of you in here have a body? Please raise your hand. Okay, almost 100% participation there. Not quite. We're close. All of you have a body. You have fingers, you have hands, you have uh, elbows, you have feet, you have toes, you have knees, you have heads, you have neck, you have all those things. Yet, though those different parts do different things, that have different functions, all of us have one body. In the same way, the church, the body of Christ, has many different types of people, diverse in their background, diverse in their gifting and the way they serve the Lord. But there's still, though there's diversity, there's a unity in the church as well, just as if it was your body. Here's a simple definition of the church based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to this, or watch this. The church is a group of diverse people saved and unified by the grace of God. The church is a group of people that come from many different backgrounds, socioeconomically, culturally, geographically, generationally, yet they're saved and unified, brought together by the grace of God. I want to start by that grace of God part. I want to show you how this scripture talks about this unity of grace. Look back at verse 12 with me. Let's go on to verse 13. So notice the illustration again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now watch this part here for the unity piece. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body... Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, if you were to watch verse 13 closely, what you'll notice is the word one is there three times. Did you notice that? One spirit, 
baptized into one body, and then he repeats it again, one spirit. What Paul is emphasizing is that though we are diverse, we're united by God's grace. When he talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here, what he's emphasizing is the experiential dimension of grace. Now, theologically speaking, there are typically two ways we talk about grace. We talk about it in legal terms and experiential terms. Most of the time when you hear the gospel presented, it's legal, right? You're guilty because of your sin. You've disobeyed God. You've lied. You've stolen. You've had pride in your heart, lust, all those things make you guilty before a perfect and righteous God. And the way that you and I get out from under our guilty sentence is by repenting of those things, turning away from those, and trusting Christ. And what happens when we trust Christ in that legal category is God declares us just. This is the fancy word justification. It means God declares you forgiven and righteous based on your repentance and faith in Him. On the other hand, the Bible also talks about an experiential component to salvation that emphasizes words like sanctification or regeneration. And what this is emphasizing is that your salvation is not just something God declares over you. Your salvation is actually something that happens to you. There's something, there's a transaction that happens in your life when you come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. What this is describing here is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of confusion about this term. Let me just quickly try to get to the kernel and the, 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 the foundational kind of piece about this that helps us understand it. What this is not describing is some kind of second blessing that happens later in your life. This is not describing that there are you know, Christians that are kind of going along and then there are super Christians that later get the Holy Spirit. What this is describing is that when you come to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life in such a way that he cleanses you and continues to cleanse you from the inside out. This is why he says the word one three times. Look at it again, verse 13, for in one spirit we were baptized into one body and now we're made to drink of one spirit. He's wanting to say through this three-time emphasis on the word one that when you and I come to Christ, the Spirit of God baptizes us, that is, immerses us, plunges us into grace. So picture it this way. Picture sin for a moment in terms of somebody being filthy and dirty from head to toe. Okay? Imagine your child comes in from playing in the dirt, as mine have done, and they've got dirt in their hair. How did you get dirt in your ears, up your nose, all the way down to your toes, right? The reason I'm describing it that way is because that's, in in a sense, what sin is. Sin is this filth and this grime and this dirt that's in every part of our bodies. It's all over us, spiritually speaking. What happens when we come to know Christ is we're repenting of that sin that covered us from head to toe in filth. And turning to Christ. And what this says is that when we come to Christ, it's not just that we're declared righteous, but it's also that the Holy Spirit actually cleanses us from head to toe so that when God sees us, he sees us as forgiven, righteous, and redeemed. There's a story from the Old Testament that helps me get my mind around this. It's a guy named Naaman. Naaman was a general in the Syrian army. 
And he actually had had scored incredible victories over the nation of Israel. He had actually destroyed God's people, had attacked them, had harmed them. And while Naaman was incredibly successful on the battlefield, he had a really significant problem. And the problem that Naaman had was that he had leprosy. Now today, we don't really think much about leprosy because we have a cure. But back in the Old Testament era, they didn't know how to cure leprosy. Leprosy is where your, your skin and your body begins to lose sensitivity, especially in your extremities. And your body begins to break down so much so that your body parts begin to fall off. Your nose, your fingers, your toes, because you can't feel what's happening to you. Pain is actually a good thing, right? Because it tells us there's a problem. These people that have leprosy, they quit feeling pain, and so they begin to lose their extremities. Very awful, grisly disease that ravages someone's body. In fact, by the New Testament era, people that have this disease have to walk through the street shouting, unclean, right? Because they've got this disease that cannot be cured. They typically had to live by themselves off in leper colonies. Horrible disease. Naaman had gone to every physician, every spiritual healer in the Syrian nation, couldn't find help. And so finally he decides, I'm going to go seek out help in Israel. He finds a prophet there who tells him, you've got to go bathe in the Jordan River. And when you do that, God will heal you. Well, Naaman looks at the man, he looks at the Jordan River and says, you want me to go bathe in that stinky, smelly, grimy river? There are hundreds of better rivers in Syria. Why would I go to this horrible river in Israel, this nation I've defeated, and bathe in that? And he storms out of the room and leaves. Well, time goes by, Naaman realizes, you know, maybe it's not so much that I'm having to go into a nation of Israel, one of their rivers that's stinky and smelly. Maybe the issue is that I've got to submit myself to God. I have to humble myself and follow God's righteous requirements for my life. So after some turmoil and some decision, he comes back. He bathes in this river. And after doing that, just as was promised, he was healed from head to toe from his leprosy. Now, here's the point. Because of our sin, you and I have a spiritual leprosy that covers us from head to toe. And the only way we experience forgiveness and grace is if we repent, if we turn from our sin and humble ourselves before our king and say, I need your healing and forgiveness in my life. And it's only when that happens that the Holy Spirit, as it's described here, baptizes, immerses us into grace, and cleanses us from head to toe. This is what the Bible is describing when it talks about this grace that is putting us into one body. However, the scripture also is clear that while grace unifies us, it's unifying a very diverse group of people. Look at the diversity part of this definition. Look back in verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. There are two dimensions to diversity here that Paul talks about. One is ethnic. talks about Jews or Greeks. Remember in this day and age when the gospel was first going out, it was first going out to the Jewish people at first, into synagogues and places like that. But as the book of Acts progresses, God says, no, you're not just going to go to the Jews. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so as the New Testament church began to expand throughout the Roman Empire, it was very common for Jews and Gentiles to be worshiping together in the same churches. 
Part of the problem for that is many of the Gentiles did not come from religious backgrounds like the Jews did that had the promises, had the Old Testament kind of knowledge in their heads. Many of them came from pagan idolatrous backgrounds. And it was very common in churches for there to be this distinction between Jews who had the pedigree and had the background and Gentiles. And what Paul is saying here is actually your ethnicity, your culture, your background has no standing in the church of Jesus Christ, because what unites you is not your ethnicity or your culture. What unites you is the grace of God. Your religion and your idolatry of your own religion is just as offensive as a Jew as a Gentile's pagan idolatry. You have to repent of both to come to Christ. So he says, ethnic diversity is still united. Though there's differences, it's united by Christ. He also, look at the second way he distinguishes diversity. He talks about slaves or free. Now, you'll remember, or you'll maybe make you aware that at this point in time in the Roman Empire, over 50% of the people were slaves. Over 50% at the time Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians, are slaves, either by choice or, or, or unwillingly, but they were there in, in some kind of service where they had sold themselves, maybe to pay off a debt. Maybe because they'd been conquered by the Romans, but they were in slavery. And so in your churches, you had people that were bond servants that were slaves, willingly, unwillingly, and you had people that were free. And typically the free people were more affluent, more economically, upwardly mobile than your slaves. And so what Paul wants to also make clear is not only does ethnic diversity come together and is united by Christ, socioeconomically, financially, we're united by Christ. There's a third dimension I think the scripture speaks to and I think is alive and well in our church family. One that sometimes causes challenges. I, I, as a pastor, when I look at diversity in our community and our body, we have cultural diversity. Last week I talked about Pastor Orel. Orel, wave your hand again. We have Latinos in our community. We have a great ministry to those folks and we'll be talking more in the days ahead about how we're partnering with them. So that diversity is there culturally. We have financial diversity here at the lake. That's definitely present. We have the haves and some that don't have as much. There's a stratification there. But one of the other uh, elements of diversity I see, especially in churches, is a generational diversity. I think there's a different way people think depending on when they were born. Think I'm right about that? Generally speaking, those of you that are 60, 65 plus think differently than folks that are in their 15 to 25-year-old range, right? One of the ways this shows up quickly in churches is in things like music. Uh, sometimes, I'm just, I've heard this once in a while, but sometimes music is something that divides people across generational lines. If you jump into a 17-year-old's car and see what they're listening to, it's probably going to be different than a 65-year-old and what they're listening to in their car right? This is just reality. One of the dangers for us as a church is making our preferences about music or any other generational part of who we are the most important thing. What Paul is saying here is ethnically, socioeconomically, generationally, there is a diversity that we're to celebrate, but still recognize is meant to be unified by the grace of God. Now, here's the question. How in the world is the grace of God going to unite people that are 14 and 94? 
you do realize in this church, we have 14-year-olds in this room, and we have somebody that's 94 in this room. This is not, like, I'm not exaggerating. Like, that's the reality. How in the world are we going to be united? Here's the answer. Let me give it to you. The grace of God unites us because it brings peace and purpose. The way that 94-year-olds and 14-year-olds will worship together in the same place is by recognizing that the grace of God brings peace and purpose. Let me take each of those and turn and unpack those for us. The grace of God brings peace. What I mean by that is before we come to know Christ, we have no peace. We have no peace on one hand because our hearts are restless. Without Jesus, before I come to know Christ, my heart is longing for things that I think are going to make me happy and satisfy me that ultimately will fail me. My heart longs to be gratified in my desire for a raise or a promotion or, or for, for uh, a, a recognition from people or friends or a bigger house or a nicer car or my kids to make good grades or for them to always do the right thing. My heart longs for all these things and, and the reality is none of them can ultimately satisfy me. Before I know Christ, my God is gratification of my desires. But the, the other reason I don't have peace before I know Christ is because not only do these desires just put me in this position of never being satisfied, never having peace and rest, but because of my sinful heart, because of this problem I have with my lust and my pride and my anger and my hatred, because those things are there, I'm actually at enmity with God. I'm in rebellion before God. Rather than acknowledging Him as God and my King and my Creator, I want myself to be my own little God. I always, it's painful for me to watch these news reels where this religious leader will get on the show or some person and they'll talk about my Jesus would never do this or my God would never do that. And I just want to say, you know, you don't get to make up your own God. You don't get to make up God for your own self and then worship that God. God is either who he says he is in the Bible or he's not. He's a God of your own creation. And because of that, because of our desire to create our own God and bow down and worship to that, we, we are in rebellion and at enmity before God. And the reason we can never experience peace is because of this rebellion and enmity with God and the rebellion and enmity and strife we have with others because we're all following our own little desires. So what has to happen for us to experience peace? What has to happen for us to experience peace is we have to bow our knees to the true God, we have to repent, that's turn from our sin, and trust Christ. And we have to say, Jesus, the penalty that I should have gotten for my rebellion, you've taken on yourself on the cross, you rose again to defeat that penalty, and now I can be forgiven. And when that transaction happens, when I repent and trust Christ, there is a peace between not only me and God, but me and other people. I was telling our life group today, I love history. One of the seasons of history that's particularly interesting to me is World War I. You had the Axis and the Allied powers that were fighting together, and there came to a head, and peace was imminent. The Allies were prevailing. The Axis powers, primarily led by Germany, saw that the end was near, and so they decided to set a treaty of peace. And in 1919, on June 28th, they had the Treaty of Versailles, 
not to be confused with Versailles here in Missouri, uh, but they had the Treaty of Versailles, um, and it was peace between the Allied powers and Germany. Now, here's why that treaty was so important. Before, when the Allies and, and, and the Axis powers were fighting, each of the Allied countries, that's you know, primarily Great Britain, the United States, and others, they had declared a state of war against Germany, right? They were in a position of hostility. And so borders were watched carefully. They were sending people to attack. There was open warfare between these two nations. But when that treaty of... Uh, Treaty of Peace was signed. When they signed that peace treaty, treaty, peace, you know what I mean. When they signed that thing, on June 28, 1919, they moved from a state of war against these people to a position of peace, right? When it was signed, they changed their diplomatic relations from hostility to peace, when you and I come to Christ, when we repent and trust Christ, God changes his position from hostility towards us to peace. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the reason that can bring unity to our hearts is because when that treaty is signed and when peace floods into our hearts, I'm no longer raging around, running around, trying to get the next promotion, living for the next size house, the next car, the next thing that the TV tells me I'm supposed to have because I deserve it. No longer longing for those things. I'm longing for Christ. And there's a peace that comes into my life vertically as I'm now considered God's child, not his enemy. I'm his child now. And there's a peace that comes into my heart horizontally with other people. The peace that God gives us through his grace enables unity because I'm not fighting for my way here at the church. You're not fighting for your way. I'm not fighting for my preference in music or your preference in music. I'm fighting for Christ. I want to come together around what Christ is doing. And so I'm willing to sacrifice maybe my preferences for you. I'm willing to put maybe people's needs ahead of my own instead of always looking out for myself. How does the grace of God unify us? It unifies us by bringing peace, not only between us and God, between us and each other. But the other word I used was purpose. The grace of God also unifies us because it brings us purpose. I've said this before. God's grace saves us from something, but it also saves us for something. Now, growing up in church, I used to hear all the time about God's grace, what it saved me from. The grace of God saves me from sin. It saves me from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God that is poured out on Christ instead of me. Jesus Christ takes my punishment on himself. It's true. That's the gospel. But the gospel continues because God doesn't just save me from something. God also saves me for something. What does God save me for? God saves me for a whole new life of living by faith, not by sight. He saves me for a life of making him famous and known not only to my neighbors, but the nations. He saves me for the great commission, which is making disciples of all nations. The grace of God not only saves me from something, it saves me for something. 
And here's what I found. The reason this purpose that God saves me for unites us is because when we as a body are all moving towards the same goal, the same purpose, it brings unity and harmony to the church. When we bicker and fight about things that aren't really that big a deal in the first place, when we make minor things major things, when we make things that were never meant to be the focus, the focus for the church, we misunderstand God's purpose with grace. Grace unites us because it directs us. It moves us to a purpose. So, if the church is this diverse body, unified by grace, that's bringing us peace and purpose, how in the world are we going to keep this peace and purpose at the forefront? What we have to do as a church, if we're going to be united, though diverse, if the 14-year-old and the 94-year-old are going to worship together in the same room, it will only happen if we keep the peace of Christ and the purpose he gives us in focus. What I want to show you, if you want to take your vision guides back, and I want you to turn to page 9 of this vision guide really quick. I want to show you how we're trying to apply the biblical principle from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. How do we keep grace in focus here at Riverview? Now, for the next few moments, I'm going to talk a lot about what we're trying to do as a body of believers on a weekly basis here at Riverview to keep the grace of God focused. Everything I'm saying is my attempt of taking the principles in 1 Corinthians 12 and applying them. There are four things we think every believer needs, four things we think believers need if we're going to keep the grace of God in focus and have the 14-year-old and the 94-year-old worshiping together in the same room. Number one, number one is the Word of God primary way we will start to keep everything in focus with the grace of God is a consistent and steady diet on the Word. Now, why would I start with the Bible? The Bible is what God uses to change us. Let me make a confession this morning. I cannot change you. Do you know that? Some of you more than others. I can't do it. I don't have enough rhetorical ability. I don't care how much school I have, and I have a good bit. I don't care of the degrees I have. None of that matters at the end of the day. I can't reach into your heart and change you from the inside out. The only person that can do that is a sovereign and holy God. He's the only one. And so what I have to do is I have to say, okay, the only way I am being a service to you as a people is if I'm standing on the means God has given us to change us. The way that God has decided to change us is through his word. Because the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces beyond just what we see into our very hearts. It changes us from the inside out. So, one of the things that we do here every week is a worship service. You'll see the, the banner to my far right. You can see it in your book there. We're calling it love. We're talking about 
the terms of worship, that it's a vertical focus where we're trying to make the Word of God what's central. Now, it's important because a lot of us have been conditioned, especially younger folks in the room, many of us have been conditioned to think of the worship service like a concert where I come and I experience something and there are feelings and emotions and there are highs and lows and uh, smoke and all that kind of stuff. And and I'm not even saying categorically all those things are bad. I just would rather us stop thinking about worship like a concert and, and start thinking about worship like a conversation. Think about worship less like a concert and more like a conversation. Now, what's a good conversation look like? A good conversation looks like where you're talking to someone, they're listening, and they're responding, and they're talking to you. Worship, when it's working biblically, is a conversation between us and God. It's where we're declaring things to God about Him, about how great He is, how powerful He is, how mighty He is how thankful we are for him. But worship is also where God is speaking to us. Now, primarily, if you look at a typical worship service, primarily what's happening is when we're singing, when we're praying things, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily we're declaring things to God. I'm saying primarily because there are times when God impresses something on your heart through a song. There are times when you're convicted through something that's prayed. That that absolutely happens. But the primary way God speaks to us on the other side is through his word. So we unapologetically have the word read. We have the word taught. There's an emphasis and a bending of our services around the clear explanation of the Bible. Why are we doing that? Because we believe hearing from God is important. I had a visitor visit our church several months ago, and I was taking the the husband to lunch and just hearing about their experience at Riverview. And he said, man, my wife got home and she said, man, those people really read the Bible a lot. And I thought, success. Uh, It was one of the greatest compliments somebody could ever give me as a pastor, because what we want is not you walking away being impressed with me or our music or our buildings or anything else that we have. We want you being impressed with Jesus. And we believe the way to do that is not by making much of me, but making much of the word. So what we do on, in worship, the reason we're putting the word of God as the central focus is because we believe that's the way to keep grace as the focus, which helps the 14 and the 94-year-old worship together. Number two, the second thing we think is important is authentic community. What I mean by authentic community is real relationships with other people. I say the word real because I think a lot of times we have fake relationships with other people. I don't think we're very good as Americans in 2016 at knowing how to have a relationship with another person. And and primarily it's because we we think that uh, we're too busy for that or we we don't know how to relate to somebody or we're scared if we open up to them that they're going to somehow hurt us or... And some of us have bad experiences that have conditioned maybe some of those responses. But biblically, what I believe we need is we need people knowing us well enough to know what we struggle with. Let me do another survey of the congregation here this morning. How many of you have problems? Please raise your hand. So I'm raising my hand, not as a hypothetical, but I have problems. Some of you raised two hands. Thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty this morning. Uh, all of us do. And what, what 
the body of Christ is meant to be is it's meant to be a family that bears the burdens of its members. We are to be a place where we're close enough to some of the people. I'm not assuming that you could be close enough to every person here, but some of the people here, you're close enough for them to know what you struggle with and for them to have the opportunity to encourage you to speak into your life. Because it's one thing for you to sit in rows and hear the word of God taught this way. It's something really powerful when you can gather around a circle with other believers and engage with the word in that way. This is why we believe life groups, this second banner to my right, live, that you see there on page 10, is important. We prioritize and believe life groups, small group Bible studies that meet throughout the life of this church, are the lifeblood of this body. The reason we believe that is because we know if you can connect there, if you can make relationships there, if you can gather with other believers around the word in that kind of environment, you will be cared for. Looking at Jack Butler here to my left, I have people all throughout this church, Jack's one of them, I've got others, where they do a better job shepherding and caring for their people in their life group than I ever could. We got an amen over here. I don't take that personally. I believe it. The the reason I believe it is because I, I can't minister to all of you. I can't do it. And so when I see Jack loving on people, when I see him inviting people over, connecting with new visitors, it blesses me beyond what you can comprehend because that's somebody being the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm not just trying to brag on Jack. I could say that about lots of people in our body. Robert Johnson, who was in our first service earlier today, he had surgery and was at home. Those people brought so much food to him, he had to tell them to stop. My freezer's full. Quit bringing me food. I, so It's just so encouraging and a blessing to me when I see our life groups minister that way. Michael Bean, our associate pastor, who's usually like running through here like he's at a track meet on Sunday morning. Uh, Michael leads our life group ministry. Michael does a phenomenal job of organizing it. If you see Michael today, by the way, getting the game is largely him Say thank you to Michael today. Would you do that for me? Encourage Michael. uh, Be a blessing to him. We believe community is essential for the body of Christ because it's through those relationships that the word of God becomes more and more alive. Number three, how do we keep the grace of God in focus? How do a 14-year-old and a 94-year-old worship together? We think the third thing people need is training and development. What I'm talking about here when I talk about training and development is I'm talking about a linear process that helps people move from where they are to their next step. Much of what we do is very cyclical, right? We, we do the same thing kind of every week. You kind of never graduate from it. You come to worship, you come to life group. There's a cycle to it, and that's good. That's healthy. That's right. But we also believe in church that there should be some kind of progression where we're moving people to something else. We're moving them to the next step. If you're a human being this morning, you have a next step. Our leadership development process is about helping people not only learn how to take their next step and their walk with the Lord, but equipping them to help other people do that as well. One of the ways we believe multiplication is going to happen at a church level is if we have a farm system that's developing and raising up leaders to minister not only in this body, but also in our community and the world. 
This is what we're talking about to my left here when we talk about grow. It's also in your books there. It's something we believe is an important part of the process of this church. One of the ways we do grow and train people is the nine-month leadership development process we have here at Riverview called Entrust. It's based on 2 Timothy 2.2. It's designed to help people over a nine-month period of time move from where they are to be able to take the next step in their walk with Jesus, but also to be able to multiply and help others take that next step as well. We have 25 people right now going through that process. If you missed out jumping in on that this past August, we do it every year. You can send up next August. But we believe having a plan and a process to move people forward, to have new leaders being raised up for ministry is important to keeping the grace of God in focus and to keeping the 14 and the 94 row worshiping together. Number four, and finally, we'll finish with this. How do we keep the grace of God in focus? It's number four, by mobilizing God's people for ministry. When I use the word mobilization, I'm primarily talking about partnerships with our community and around the world for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people who do not know Christ. We have a responsibility not just to invest in one another, not just to train people in our body. We have a responsibility to go out of our comfort zone of our church and share the love and the message of Jesus with the lost and dying world. If you're taking notes, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, lays out a clear plan for this, where, where Jesus tells the disciples they're going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, that's their local community, their Judea, Samaria, that's their country, and the uttermost, the world, the ends of the earth. We at Riverview are establishing partnerships in all three of these areas. One of the partnerships that you have an opportunity to participate in two weeks is called Love the Lake. I think I got it right that time, Ron. Love the lake. Why are we doing a whole Sunday morning of mobilizing 250 plus people to minister to this community with the love and the message of Jesus? Why are we doing that? It's because we think it's important to move people, not only to invest in one another as a church, but to share the message of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world. This is our go strategy. We call it go appropriately because we're trying to move people to action. Love, live, grow, go. That is what we are trying to be about at this church. That's what we're giving ourselves to. That's our focus. And so here's my question in closing. I talked about everybody having a next step. I asked you this last week. I'm going to ask you it again this week. What is your next step? What is your, where you're sitting right there this morning, what's your next step? For some of you, the next step needs to be plugging into one of these things. You, you realize that there's a need that you have in your life to, to move towards this. That needs to be a priority. Some of you need to plug into some kind of life group, some kind of ministry opportunity. Those are there in front of you. Some of you may consider, you know what? I need to be a part of this church. I need to join this group of people. I need to plug into that. Our next membership class is October 2nd. We'd love to tell you more about how you can plug in and be a part. I'm convinced after reading this passage of Scripture and talking about this with you that one of the things I think is really the next step for many of us is experiencing the peace of God. I believe many of you this morning are tired, you're running, you're busier than you've ever been, and you don't really feel like you're accomplishing more than you've ever accomplished. When I look at American families today in 2016, what I see are people that are very, very busy, because they think they're supposed to be busy, but very, very unsatisfied, very, very stretched, and very, very depleted. What the grace of God promises you this morning is rest for your soul. Now, rest doesn't mean inactivity. Peace doesn't mean lack of busyness. I'm not saying that you're going to 
pray in a few moments and all of a sudden all of your commitments are going to go away. But peace and rest change how you view your commitments. It changes why you do what you do. And I'm concerned as your pastor, as I look across your faces this morning, that some of you haven't experienced peace and rest in a long time. And so what I'm going to do this morning in closing in a few minutes is I'm not going to pray for like peace later for you or you're going to figure it out down there. I'm actually going to pray in a few moments that God would flood your mind and your heart with his peace right now. But some of you this morning need to mentally make a note. You know what? He's right. I, I'm not experiencing peace. I'm not experiencing rest. I don't even know what that looks like. What Jesus Christ offers you this morning with his goodness and grace is peace and rest. But finally, there are others of you that, that don't know Christ. There's some of you here this morning who've never experienced the peace of God. Like I said a few minutes ago, without Christ, you're at war with God and you're in hostility with others because of your desires. You're making gratification your God. My prayer for you is that if that's you this morning, that you would recognize my next step is entering into the peace that God offers for the first time. And the way you do that is by repenting of that sin and trusting Christ that what he's done for you is the only thing that can truly satisfy you. My prayer is that in this moment in time of prayer that God would make your next step clear if that's something on the stage, if that's something in your heart, that God would clearly show that to you. Would you please pray with me as we close? God of grace, we thank you for your mercy and kindness in our lives. And God, I thank you that I can confidently stand before these people this morning and say that what you offer them is peace and rest. God, as Americans, we've become busier than we've ever been. Our families are busier than they've ever been. Our jobs are busier than they've ever been. But Lord, we, in many cases have failed to rest in you amidst that busyness. And so, Father, right now, I pray that you'd make it clear to some of the believers in this room that they need to rest in you or that they need to see your goodness and grace in their life and what you've done for them as solving their greatest problem. That their greatest problem is not their finances. It's not their kids' grades. It's not the next house, it's not the next car, it's not the next thing. Lord, that, that what you've given them in your grace is enough. So Father, right now, would you please flood those of us that know you as Savior and Lord, would you refresh us with your peace and your rest? Church, just take a moment and dwell on that as we pray together silently. As we continue to pray, I know that there are some of you here that that are not Christians. You're not a follower of Jesus. You you may know some things about Jesus. You may have been to church some. You may have parents or grandparents that are Christians, but you're not a follower of Christ. You've never experienced the peace and the rest that Jesus offers you. 
I want to pray for you for a few moments. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, that you would show people in this room that do not know you that they don't know you. And that you would hold before them their brokenness, their sin, their disobedience. And Lord, you would turn them to Jesus. That you would turn their eyes to you and you would help them see the glorious grace that Jesus offers them. God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you open their eyes and would you lead them to repentance and faith? God, finally, I pray for this church. God, I've tried my best this morning to show from the Bible why what we're doing is important here, why what we believe we're doing is intentional and strategic. But Lord, I, I want to confess to you that all my planning, all of our team, and the emphasis we put on these things, Lord, we go, we go nowhere without you. We need you, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you'd move in our midst especially as we approach Love the Lake, would you move in and through this body of believers? In Jesus' name, we ask all these things. Amen. Would you please stand with us and sing?